We just thank you for this evening. We thank you for how much you have loved us, that you gave us your word so that we could study. And we ask you to guide and look as we look in this uh, scripture in your son's name. Amen. Okay, we're going to be in Joshua chapter 8. I just want to kind of look back over the last chapter because these two chapters, 7 and 8, really form a, a unit as far as the history, but they also form a unit from application. And we're going to go into the application kind of before we start this second half of it. Uh, in the first half, we saw, well, even going back into 6, the Battle of Jericho, how God gave Jericho to the people, they were facing a battle that they knew they couldn't win. And what did they do? They turned to God. What did they do right after they fought the battle of Jericho? They looked over at another city and they go, this is just a small city. We can handle this problem. And we can handle this city. It's just a small city. And a matter of fact, if you remember, they told Joshua, you know, Joshua, you don't even need to send the whole army. We'll just send, we'll just send about 10,000 men against this city. It's a small one. We can conquer it. And you know, we in our Christian walk do the same thing so often. When we come against something that is, looks insurmountable to us, we'll turn to God and say, God, I, I would need your help for this. And then we'll turn to something and, and we'll go, God, uh, God, you can just stay over there in the corner. I can, I can handle this problem. I can do this myself. And then we get our butts kicked and we wonder, and we start wondering, well, gee, what happened? And we're going to see... From this, we're going to see in this chapter God's answer to the problem of AI. Um, AI. And uh, so we started out Jericho needing God, man's, man's issue, and then we know that the, the reason they were defeated at AI was even more because it was a spiritual issue of Achan having stole, stolen the, the, the clothing and the, and, the, and the gold and sin in the camp and how sin in the camp will keep you, will get you defeated in anything. And we covered a lot of that last week. So, as we, And then we're going to see how God decides to deal with AI. And uh, look at that application. Verse 1. And the Lord said to Joshua, Fear not, neither be you dismayed. Take all the people of war with you, and arise and go to AI. See, I have given them into your hand the king of AI, and his people in his city and his land. And you shall do to AI and her king as you did to Jericho and her king, only the spoil thereof and the cattle thereof shall you take for a prey unto yourself. Lay you an ambush for the city and behind it. So Joshua arose and all the people of war to go up against Ai. And Joshua chose out 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them away by night. And he commanded them, saying, Behold, you shall lie in wait against the city, even behind the city. Go not very far from the city, but, you, but be you ready. And I and all the people that are with me will approach into the city and it shall come to pass when they come out against us as at the first we will flee before them and they will come out after us till we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say they flee before us as at first therefore we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up in ambush and seize upon the city and the Lord your God will deliver it into your hands and it shall be when you have taken the city that you shall set the city on fire According to the commandment of the Lord shall you do. See, I have commanded you. Let's see how far do I want to go. Joshua therefore sent them forth, and they went into an ambush and, be, and abode between Bethel and Ai, on the west side of Ai. But Joshua lodged that night among the people. And Joshua rose early in the morning and numbered the people and went 
went up, and he and the elders of Israel before the people of Ai, and all the people, even the people of the war that were with him, went up and drew nigh and came before the city and pitched on the north side of Ai. Now there was a valley between them and Ai. We're going to stop at 11 for a moment. So we're going to look at this. Uh, God comes to Joshua, and remember Joshua... At the beginning of chapter 7, after their defeat had been on his face, finally, he forgot to ask God before the battle of Ai, but he's going on his face complaining to God that they've lost. <laughs> okay, God, we have lost. How many times do we do that? You know, we do things that God did not tell us to do, and then we complain about God about how bad our life is because we did all the things that we weren't supposed to do in the first place. And then we complain to God like it's his fault. And Joshua has gone complaining to God about the loss of battle in Ai because he never prayed to God to ask him if he should go to battle. And then he's complaining, God, it's all your fault that we lost, and how, how could you let this happen to us? Have you ever thought that way? God, how could you let this happen to me? Oftentimes it's because of sin in our life. Sometimes it's just because God wants to learn, make us learn to trust him. You know, we think about Paul. How many times could Paul have said, God, but why have you let all this happen to me? You know, beaten several times with, with 39 lashes, uh, scourged, stoned, uh, out in the sea, he said, out in the sea for three days, you know, without a boat <laughs> uh, during a shipwreck. You know, he's, every time he turned around, bad things were happening to him, and yet he goes, you know, God is really good to me. <laughs> Most of us would go, God, I, I, how, how could I follow you with all these bad things happening? And, but Paul's eye was on the future of heaven. Whatever he was going to pay on this world, he did not worry about it. And in one sense, he probably felt he deserved it for his mistreatment of the church in the first place. And there are those people who just say, well, I deserve whatever I get, God. And we see Joshua on his face, and now God comes to him and says, okay, Joshua, don't be, don't be afraid. You know, fear not. You know, the word fear not is in the Bible some... 350 times, I think it is. Fear not. That is one of God's favorite things. Do not be afraid. Why is fear such a big deal? Well, because it's presuming on the future. And most things that we fear are not legitimate. You know, I'm afraid that something might happen to me sometime in the future. You know, we're told in the Bible, uh, in Matthew, that do not fear tomorrow, but for tomorrow has enough, will take care of itself. In other words, it's going to get there. Whether you worry about it or not, tomorrow is going to get here. Unless you die and go to heaven. So your worrying about tomorrow does not help anything. At all. Now, that doesn't mean you can't make some plans just in case things happen. But don't worry about the future. There's, one, there's a big difference between making plans. Okay, God, I'm going to set aside money so that if I lose my job, I've got money in the bank to cover my cover my living expenses god i'm going to do this just in case something happens but i'm not going to sit there oh man i might lose my job tomorrow i better get some money in the bank no that's you know the chances are that we're going to lose our job are pretty high at some point you're going to lose a job but you can't sit there and be f worrying and fretting over it at some point we will probably lo lose our health if we live long enough but to sit there and worry, well, I might have this disease, I might have this disease, this might go wrong, I might, this might happen to me, this might happen to me. You're going to ruin your life. And plus all that worry will probably get you into those diseases faster than what you, if you hadn't worried about them. 
So, but God says all the time, fear not. Why, why would he tell us not to fear? Because he has tomorrow in his hands. You know, you know, tomorrow, worrying about the future is kind of a wasted time because God has it in control. It's going to come. If God wants it to come, it's going to come whether you're worrying about it or not. And it's, if he doesn't want it to come, it's going to come, not come whether you worry about it or not. And, you know, and God keeps telling people, fear not. You know, don't be troubled. Peter tells us, cast all your cares on him, for he cares for you. God, God has very broad shoulders. He'll take all your, all your cares and he'll say, okay, this one's worthless, this one's worthless, this one's worthless. Uh, this one is, is going to happen, but they don't need to worry about it because I've got it under control. So we cast our cares on him and he just casts them away. You've got to keep this in mind. God does not worry about your worries. <laughs> Once you cast your worries on him, he goes, okay, thank you. And he throws them away. And he tells Joshua, fear not. And then in case that's not enough, neither be dismayed. <laughs> All right? Don't be worried and don't be so troubled that you can't go forward. Worries will always lead you to a place where you cannot make actions because you're so worried about everything that might happen. You know, have you ever started worrying about something and then you've got that problem so big in your mind that uh, nothing could conquer it? <laughs> you know, you, you've changed your, your little tiny anthill into the, to Mount Everest. <laughs> and, you know, you're looking at this and God's saying, it's, it's nothing. But you've, you've gotten all these things added to it. And you're like, wow, God. And then you get to the other side of the hill and you look back and see, you see the anthill. <laughs> That it was when you first that it really was. Have you have you ever gotten to the other side of a big problem and looked back on it and realized it was really nothing, especially when you worried about, and spent a lot of time trying to figure out how you're going to get past it, and you get to the other side of it and it's like, what was, that was what I was worried about. You know, this little this little event was what I spent, twelve years worrying about. <laughs> you know, or months or whatever it might be. <laughs> But, you know, Paul, uh, God is telling Joshua, fear not, neither be dismayed. Then, then we look at God's answer to Ai. He says, take all the men of war. How many men of war are there? About 166,000 men. God, when he deals with things, does not just do things in a limited manner. When God puts his resources to it, just, his, just being him, his on it, it's, it's done. It's finished. Now, he said, I'm going to destroy Jericho. You don't have to do anything. All you're going to do is march around the city and this wonderful game plan will march around the city and the walls will fall down. And then you walk into the city and destroy it. AI, you, know, you, you think you can deal with it in a, in a, with a small number of people? I'm saying go with, take everybody there. Take everybody. Can you imagine, you know, AI is considered a small city compared to Jericho, and he's saying, take all of the men of war. All of them. They're being stealthy as well, yeah. You know, they, weren't, they weren't sneaking up as we see later on. The, the main body was, had a plan, so. Yeah. And uh, he says, and by the way, Joshua, you're going to do to AI what you did to Jericho. You're going to destroy it. You're going to kill the king. You're going to kill all the men. Except in this case, you can take the spoils. 
You can take the silver, the gold, the gems. You can take the animals because the first ones belong to God. He says, in this case, you guys get to get rich in battle. And remember, we've talked in, in, in their day, when you went to battle, you did not have a standing army in most cases. The king would have a small bodyguard that were his special trained men. But when you went to war, you went to war in the summer. The farmers would plant their fields. And while the crops were growing, they would become the army for the kings and the kings would go to war. A great example of this was when, when David stayed in Jerusalem and had his adulterous affair with Bathsheba. That chapter starts in the springtime when the, at the time when the kings went to war. David was where he wasn't supposed to be and got into trouble. And we know, we know that story, how he had an adulterous affair and he uh, committed murder by killing Uriah through the battle, but all of these things. In their time, they would, get the, they would get, gather up all the farmers, all the people, and they'd go, okay, now is the, war, the season for war. And these guys would go to war. The way you were paid when you went to war is if you managed to live through the battle, you would get to strip the enemy of all of their treasure. If you took a city, you got to strip the city of its treasures, and it became the pay for the, the, the soldiers, called the spoils of war. And it, literally, that's how you got paid. So you, you liked going against strong, rich, rich nations because if you won, you were well paid. If you didn't, you, you went, you're dead and you went to heaven <laughs> or the Jews. Uh, but that was the way they paid them. That's the way they paid their army. And they went, to, they went to battle while the crops were growing and then they would finish their battle by the time it was time to get the crops uh, harvested and you'd, go back, you'd all go back home. <laughs> And then during the winter, it was too muddy and, and wet to go, to go out to war. So you went to you, had, you only had about three to four months of battle during this period of time. If you went to war, you might have a war that lasted for years, but you only fought for, for three to four months out of the year. Uh, and then everybody would go home. And then next year, you'd start it all over again. Uh, so they're, they're going to battle. And he says, this time, you get to keep, you get to keep the spoils. And... And so Joshua came up with a, this plan, or God gave him a plan, and he picks 30,000 mighty men. And he says, okay, you 30,000, you go around Ai to the backside of Ai. Okay? They're on the south side of Ai, and he's telling them, go up on the north side of Ai. And they're going to camp between Ai and Bethel. And Bethel means house of God, and that is where Jacob saw the, the vision of the ladder, and he called it, this is surely the... I was in God's house and I didn't know it and he called the place Bethel. And so they're camping now between the 30,000 have gone in there and they're laying in ambush. They're waiting. And uh, he says, and he says, well, you're going to lay in wait against it and you're going to hide. And myself and all the other men of war, we're going to come up against Ai at the front door, just like, just like we did before. So you got 30,000 of the 166,000 people Lying in wait. They sent more people the second time to go wait, lay the ambush than they went with the first attack. All right? So they are serious this time. God's saying, you are going to win this, and you're not going to just do it lightly. I'm going to show you my power. And he lays out this plan for them. And so they go out, and they hide, and he says, you know, 
we're going to go up and then we're going to flee before the people just like we did before. Yeah, this is an interesting battle plan. You know, we're going to go to AI and then they're going to come out and fight us and we're going to run away. And they're going to think that they've been victorious again. Because now, instead of just 10, 10 or 15,000, now 130,000 people are turning tail to run away. And they're going to be emboldened. And they would be emboldened. Any army would be emboldened. You know, hey, we beat them, we beat them two days ago, and now look at this. We got them again. <laughs> We've got them again. We're going we're gonna to take them again. And uh, he says, when you've taken the city. Now look at this. It's not if you take the city, but when you take the city, set it on fire. Set it on fire. Destroy the city. Why? Because they're just going to keep the animals and the gold and silver. Anything else is supposed to be destroyed. And uh, so we're, we're looking at this, and they, and they go for it. And so these people are in it, and then Joshua stays with, that night with the people, and he numbers the people, and he gets ready, and he goes up to Ai, and he pitches on the north side on the, on the, of the valley between Ai and, and, and he, so they're camped on this. And one thing you want to understand is most of the battles in that day happened in valleys. And even into this day, most, of the, most battles happen in the valleys. You're, it's to the, your advantage to have the high ground. Even in today's warfare, you want the high ground. You can see further. Today, it makes it really advantage because you've got the guns that can shoot <laughs> at a long distance, so you really want the high ground. And when enemy are coming up the hill, it's harder to come up the hill. And there's all kinds of advantages. But the battles in the history were always down in the valleys and the flat places. And so here they are. They're on the hill. AI's on a hill, and there's a valley between the two, which is where they're going to plan on having their battle. And it says in verse 12, And he took about 5,000 men and sent them to lay an ambush between Bethel and AI on the west side of the city. So he's got another. He's now taken another 5,000 people to come in from the side as they get ready to battle. And when they had set the people, even all the host that was on the north side of the city, then their liars on the west, Joshua went that night into the midst of the valley. And it came to pass when the king of Ai saw that he hasted and rose early in the morning and the men of the city went out against Israel to battle. And he and all his people at the time appointed before the plain but he knew not that there were liars in ambush against him be behind the city. So this goes back to what you're saying. You, you're saying they were sneaking up. In the, during the early morning hours, uh, you know, still dark, they started marching down into the valley. And the king was observant. He had his guards on the, on the walls, and he's saying, oh, they're marching down to me. They're marching down to me, and he came out. And he came out with his whole, everybody he could muster. He's going, okay, we beat him once. And he's confident. Satan oftentimes gets confident with us. When we let him beat us in some area of sin, he'll, he'll keep coming at us. And then when we finally give up to God and God comes out and says, okay, let me show you. Now, I beat you already at the cross and I'm going to put you back in your place. And the king is about to be put in his place. This is a you know, picture of a spiritual battle. Remember, they're going into Canaan, the promised land, and that's the picture of prosperity and spiritual living. And when, we're, when we as sinners face off against the enemy, God is going to be the victor because he has got the strength. And, it, and Joshua and all Israel made as if they were beaten before them and fled away in the wilderness. 
Right, you got this very confident king. He's already beat you once, and he thinks he's got you beat again. Okay? And this is the thing. We, we, if you look at the battles in the Bible, Abraham goes up against the five kings and when Lot is captured, and he beats, he beats them in their battle, and then he chases after them for almost a full day, killing everybody that he comes across. All the time, the worst time that you could have is when you're running away from the battle. And we see here that they're, gonna, they're, they're running away from the battle. And these, this, these guys think they have it made. You know, okay, we, got, we got these guys on the run. They're, they're easy prey. You know, they're, they're, not, they're not looking at us anymore. They're not ready to fight. We need to be careful, number one, that we don't run away from battles of the Satan and, and sin. Because when you're holding a shield, your shield is only good if it's facing the enemy. And if you're running away from the enemy, your shield's not facing the enemy. And our sword and everything is designed to be going forward, not to be running away. Matter of fact, even in today's warfare, if you're running away from battle, you're in trouble. When you're in retreat, you are in a bad place because you're not facing the enemy. You're not fighting, and lots of people die during the retreats. And if you study military history, this is a lot of what you get is this army ran and more people usually die in the retreat than in the middle of the battle because you're not in a defensible place. You're trying to retreat someplace. And so, in verse 16, and all the people that were, that were in Ai were called together to pursue after them, and they pursued after Joshua and were drawn away from the city. And there was not a man left in Ai or Bethel that were, went not after Israel, and they left the city open to pursue after Israel. So here's their confidence. All the men, all the men are chasing after them. They think they've got, you know, they see 100,000 people running away from them. They think they've got it made. They think they've got it made. So they empty their cities and leave the gates open. The enemy's on the run. And notice that this is the first time it's mentioned in verse 17. There's actually two cities that are involved in this. Ai and Bethel. They're going to end up taking two cities. Before they were only looking to do one, God's going to say, okay, you only wanted one. I'm going to give you two. I'm going to give you two cities for the price of one. And when God's involved, have you ever noticed in your life when God's involved in your life how miraculous things happen and how great victories are in your life? Sometimes you sit there and you fight for a long time trying to make things happen in your flesh and then I'll go, and you give up and God says, okay, now let me, let me give you the victory in this. I wasn't going to let you have the victory when you thought it was yourself. We need to be very careful and surrender to God our life and say, God, I want your plan. Now this is a big plan that's put together. This is a big military plan. It's a good military plan. But you know what? If Joshua had come up with this plan and God was not in it, it probably would not have worked. Even though it's a good plan. God would have said, even if this had, let's say this had been their plan before they found out that Achan had sinned in the camp. They would have gotten their butts kicked even with this great military plan because sin was in the camp and God would have said, no, you're not going to be victorious while sin is in the camp. I've been there. I've done that. Tried to make plans that would get me out of different situations and do things my way. And God says, no, no, your way is not going to be victorious. Which is why we need to spend time before God in, in all our decisions 
Too many times we do so much without considering God, without bringing God into the mix. God, what should I be doing? Guide me, lead me. God, should I be doing this or should I not be doing this? And there are a lot of people who tell you that God's not interested in, in certain parts of your life. I total, totally believe God's interested in every part of your life. Who you're married to, what you do for a job, what you, where you live, all, everything about your life God is interested in. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been praying for my kids and, their, and who their spouses would be. You know, I want God to be part of every decision. The times we get in trouble is when we do things you know, with our little pro-con list. Okay, God, here's all the good things. God, there's 28 good things and there's only two bad things on this list. I'm going to do the good thing. You know, I'm going to do what it says may or may not be the right answer. I've made those lists and been wrong sometimes. Many times, as a matter of fact. When God's in it, he will let you know. How do we hear his voice? Most of us don't hear God's voice because we're so busy doing things our way that we don't stop and listen. God speaks with a still, small voice. And until we quiet ourselves, we won't hear God. How do you quiet yourself? Yeah, because sometimes I think my mind is going so loud, so fast, that if God was trying to talk to me, I couldn't hear him, and then I don't know how to turn the buttons off. About if you just bow before him and you quiet your heart and, and go into peace. Everything that's yelling at you, you cast on him. God, I want you to have this. I want, I want you to have this because it's keeping me from hearing you. And just start giving it to him and let it go. When I was young, and it's been a pretty famous little skit, there, you know, there was a skit that came up. This guy would come up the, usually come up the aisle between the, between the seats, and he'd be carrying four or five bags and be dragging a bunch of stuff on him. And, you know, and he goes to the cross, and he kind of puts everything around the cross. And depending on what point they want to make, he walks away from the cross and leaves everything there. But most of the time, the story goes, he starts walking from the cross, then turns back and get, picks up a bag, starts walking away from the cross, turns back, grabs another bag, and almost always ends up maybe leaving one bag or leaving the cross with as many bags as he came to the, to the cross with. How do you make yourself turn around and put them right back? You just do it. Again, it's just like I say when it comes to how do you learn to surrender? You do it. Every time in my life when I've battled with God about surrendering and giving up something in my life, when I finally just do it, I walk away from him going, why did it take me so long? It was so simple. It was so simple. It wasn't simple two decades before when I was trying to fight it for so long or months or years or whatever. But you know, and I hope you've all been there where you finally just give up something and you give it to God and all of a sudden you turn around and go on, why did I ever think that was so hard? All I had to do was, you know, the Nike. But you know, it is just learning to just put it before God and say, God, I want you to keep this. Help. And it may be literally just saying, God, help me to leave it here. Help me to just leave my worries, my concerns. It's an amazing thing. The more you can learn to follow God, and the, it gets easier. It gets easier the more you do it. But you know, it's hard at first. It's hard to put your faith in God. You know, how do you put your faith in somebody you can't see? 
God, I know that you're very powerful, but <laughs> I see my problem. It's right here in front of my face. God, I, I know that you want me to do this for you, but I just don't know that I can. I heard somebody quoting C.S. Lewis on, on how, much, how much you should give to God. And C.S. Lewis said, you give until you can't afford to give anymore. You, know, you give so much that you've given more than you can afford. Not too many people do that. Because what happens as soon as you start giving to that certain point? Well, God, if I give you any more, I can't pay my bills. And God said, exactly, you'll have to depend on me. God wants our dependence on him. If I always stop at the point where I can control or think that I can control what's coming my way, I'm not depending on God. If I take and I go, God, I can give you 30% of my income and I can still pay all my bills, and God's going to say, well, wonderful, you're doing a good job, but you're not depending on me. And God will probably tell you, give me 33%. Trust me for 3% of your, of your life. We do this to him in all areas of our life. God, I'm really in control. I can handle these many problems. And everything else, God, you can have all the rest. <laughs> but I can do this much. And God's saying, I want you to take the next step. The next step of faith. The next step of trust that says, I am putting all my trust in you, God, because I'm going beyond what I can do. This is the scripture in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There hath no temptation overtaken you, but such is a common demand. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above which that you are able to withstand, but will, with the temptation, provide a way of escape. Most people will take and say, well, God has promised that I can handle everything that comes my way. And that's not really what that verse says. He provides the way of escape. He's going to take you to what is going to, is going to break you. God is always going to take you to the place where your flesh will fail. And that you have to turn to him in faith. This is kind of where Joshua's at. Joshua has just been beaten. First time in 41 years that he's lost a battle as a general. You want to shake your confidence? <laughs> I'm in the promised land, God. You've made me the, the, in charge of all the nation. I'm no longer just in charge of the army. I'm in charge of everybody. And now the second battle you send me to, we lose. And it's where he says, well, I want to go back to Egypt. <laughs> he, well, basically he said that. Why did you bring us here? We were better off on the other side of the, of the Jordan. He didn't really go, on, go back to the Egypt, but he's going, and we had it made over there on the east side of the Jordan, God. You, you gave us nothing but victories, and now we lose. We come, to the, we come to the west side of the Jordan, and we lose a battle. Because God didn't send him to that. Because he didn't go as and But, you know, we need to be very careful because God can oftentimes put us in a place that he wants to shake up our confidence in our flesh. God, I can do this. I can handle this. I would never fall into this sin. You know, I would never do pick, your, pick whatever it might be. If you ever say, I will never, I could never do such and such, you better start watching your life very carefully because that is exactly where you're probably going to fall. Because we do a number of things. Number one, we're trusting in our flesh. I in my flesh have enough strength that I would never do that sin. 
and I'm presuming on God's, against God's power. Yeah. And this is happening. Many of these people that fall into adultery had no desire to ever fall into adultery, especially some of the spiritual leaders that have fallen into adultery. And I'm absolutely sure that if you were to talk to them 10, 15, 20 years before they fell into adultery, you'd be hearing them say, I would never, I would never commit adultery. I'm so much in love with my wife or, you know, that I would never, ever do that. All of a sudden, certain circumstances get just laid out in front of you. And if you're going to depend on your flesh, your flesh will fail. Our flesh wants to sin. No matter how strong we think our flesh is, our flesh wants to sin, which is why God wants it crucified. He doesn't want it under control. He doesn't want it tamed. He doesn't want it, you know, disciplined. He wants our flesh dead. How do we quiet ourselves before God? We crucify our flesh that is screaming against him. How do we learn to be quiet before God? We let God crucify our flesh. We cast it all upon him and say, God, I am nothing without you. Uh, And we literally have to understand, I can do nothing without Christ. Too many of us, myself included, so many times have this idea that, God, I can do some things. I I can do a few things for you, God. And God's saying, nope, you cannot. Anything done in the flesh is our own self-righteous actions and it stinks before God. Isaiah says all all our righteousness, the best things we can do are filthy rags before God. Okay? And you know, what's really funny is we'll get really feeling real good about ourselves. God, look at all the good things I've done for you. I've done this and this and this and this and this and I go to church when the doors are open. I've been reading my Bible every day. I've been praying. I've talked, I've talked to 300 people in the last three days to give them the gospel and I've done this and I've done this and God's saying, okay, and? <laughs> where, where have I been during all this time? You know, it is very possible to pray and not be talking to God. Just spend a bunch of time talking spending words. Have you ever been praying and you feel like your prayers have hit the ceiling and gone no further? Maybe you've not even made it that high. And God says, uh, how about if you take care of your sin? You have odd against your brother. You have have unforgiveness in your heart. You're angry against this person. You have an issue with your spouse. Get, Get these things taken care of and then come back. Jesus said, if you come to the altar to give your offering and there you remember that you have a problem with your brother, go and deal with your brother and then come back and give the offering. But aren't we always going to have that? There are going to be a time where we just hang around here. There's always going to be something there. There's always going to be things in your life that are going to be problems. But are you dealing with your problems or are you trying to hide them? God does not let us hide our problems. If you have, and he says, if when you come to your altar, you remember. We have to deal with these things because we want to go, well, God, it's really not that big a deal. They probably aren't even aware of it. I don't need to, I don't need to make things right with them. I don't really, you know, I haven't seen them for a year. I don't care about them. And for some of us who really don't care about, you know, that have trouble caring about people, it's real easy to ignore the issues between us and people because we don't care anyway. But God is saying, no, this is an issue. 
it is an issue to have unconfessed sin and issues with, with brothers, and especially brothers and sisters. Bad enough with the world. But, you know, you come into a church and everybody's mad at each other. Yeah. Jesus said, you'll know them my disciples by your love one for another. And I don't know if you've ever been in a church where, where you come in and nobody even likes each other. They're coming to church because God said to come to church and they don't want to be with each other. They are not in koinonia fellowship. They are not one. They are there to worship God and God's saying, sorry, I stayed outside. There's so much anger and bitterness in this place that I'm, I'm not bothering to come in. If we always have them, how did you deal with it? You're going to have to deal with your unforgiveness and your sin before God. We, we actually have, when our, in our prayer guide, we have the acronym ACTS, which I've always said should be CATS. Confess. Confess your sins. Confess your, your things. Then give adoration to God. Then you give God thanks, and then you give him your supplications. The first step in coming to God is confession. And you know what? If you're truly confession, confessing, you're going to make things right with people. Because God says you need to make things right. When you've got somebody that you're holding a grudge against, God's saying, deal with it. Why? Because if he's forgiven us, we must forgive others. And he even says, if you don't forgive others, I'm not going to forgive you. And that is not a salvation issue. It is a fellowship issue. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. This is not a salvation issue with him. Because Jesus Christ died for our sins. It's a fellowship issue. You may go to heaven and have no real fellowship with God because he says, your unforgiveness of others means I'm holding ought against you. When you stand at the bema seat of Christ as a Christian, he's going to say, you don't have any rewards because you did not have fellowship with my, with my, uh, with my family. You did not forgive others. You were acting in your flesh. You did not work, walk in the spiritual realm. You're going to enter into heaven, but all the things you thought you did for him are going to burn up. And he's going to say, here you go. You're in heaven. You're in heaven because of my grace and my, my gift to you. But you and I were not in fellowship for your life. Our way to fellowship is seeking forgiveness, confessing our sins, going to one another and saying, I am so sorry that I've, that I've done this to you. Now, part of the problem is sometimes we don't know that we've offended a brother or sister. All you can do in those cases, God, if there's somebody I've offended that I don't know, forgive, you know, forgive it or bring it to my mind so that I know. But you know, most of us don't have the problem of having to worry about the ones we didn't, don't know about because we all have problems that we know that we've done. And we need to learn to forgive. And we've, you know, forgiveness has been the topic of the, of the day for quite a while now, and I don't know why it keeps coming up. You know, but we need to be able to learn to forgive and go to people and say, you know, I am sorry that I did such, such and such. You know, do not go to somebody and say, well, you should need to repent to me because you did this and you hurt my feelings. No! <laughs> forgive them! You don't even need to go to that person in that case. You know, forgive them. And what did we define forgiveness as the other day? Giving up your right to demand 
punishment for that person. Okay? When somebody offends us, we do have a right to expect them to be punished. Forgiveness is when I say, God, I relent. I'm not going to, I don't want to even see them punished. That's what true forgiveness is. God, this person really hurt me, but God, I'm going to let it go. If they never get punished, I'm not worried about it. How often do we spend time going, God, you haven't punished that person yet. I'm really mad at them, God. When are you going to punish them? And God's saying, I'm giving them, I'm giving them mercy. I'm giving them mercy. The world does not understand forgiveness. But we look at this and we say, how much animosity do I have be- toward people because of unforgiveness in my heart? How many times have I been hurt so many times by somebody that I'm just not going to forgive them and I'm just waiting for God to judge them? Now, there will be most people who say, well, no, I'm not waiting for God to judge them. But if you're holding bitterness in your heart, then you are definitely waiting for them to get what they deserve. Whether you recognize it or not, your heart, your deep emotional being is saying, I'm waiting for them to get what they deserve. Joshua was pretty bitter about losing the first time. So he uh, prayed to God. But part of his bitterness, though, remember his prayer was, God, your enemies now are emboldened because we lost, and they're going to think that they can win. It wasn't so much bitter toward God. It was bitter, it was bitter toward the testimony of God being hurt, even though it was his fault that it happened, and he's kind of blaming God. He was, his problem was more, God, it, you, this is going to make your enemies bold. And Satan loves it when we do not forgive one another. And I've heard people say, well, I'll forgive them when they ask me. Well, you know what? They may never ask you to. You know, they may never apologize. They may never ask you to be forgiven. I am so glad that God did not take that attitude with us. I will send you Jesus when they are ready to ask you for forgiveness and not until... No, that was not God's plan. He says, son, you're going to be going and you're going to go even though they have not even sought forgiveness because in their flesh they can't anyway. We need to just learn to forgive and not hold grudges against people. How many times has somebody done something and you go, okay, here's, you seem to have done that maybe 30 or 40 times. I can't, don't know the exact number, but I know you've done it a lot of times. That's a good sign that you haven't forgiven them. Very good sign that you haven't forgiven them because you're just waiting for them to get what they deserve. You know, you, you, miss, you are so much trouble. I'm just waiting. I'm just waiting. I'm, I'm looking forward to you. You're Jonah going to the city of Nineveh, preaching the message that they're going to die and then going up on the mountaintop waiting for God to, de- to destroy them. And then being mad at God because he doesn't destroy them. Because they repented. God accepted Nineveh's repentance and, forgive, and forgave them Jonah's sitting up on the mountain saying, God, I don't care that they repented. You said, you just made me a false prophet. You said you were going to destroy them, and now they're not going to be destroyed because they, they repented. Of course, that was his whole message, repent. <laughs> you know, he was not ready to forgive. And he had good reason to. Nineveh was the enemy of Israel. They sent their armies in and raided their villages and raided their, pro, you know, their produce and their, and their cities and took, away, took one. You know, he hated Nineveh. He did not want to see Nineveh uh, spared. 
Matter of fact, he told God, he told God, I knew you were, I knew, I didn't go there because I knew you were a just God. I knew you were a merciful God. I knew that if they repented, you wouldn't destroy them. And I wanted them destroyed, so I went the other way. Do we ever do that with people because we're so afraid that they might repent and be accepted by God if we were to tell them, I forgive you? And then we'd have to not see them punished? We need to be careful with this because Jonah understood that. He understood it real well. God, if they repent, you're going to forgive them, so I'm not even going to give them the message. God made him give the message. And you know, God may make us may give that message to people. During times of revival in, in places, it usually starts with God's people clearing the air amongst themselves so that God's spirit can move. And once the air is cleared amongst God's people, God's spirit moves because he's free. Because he, we do bind him up. He's not going to work in and amongst a group of people that are not willing to forgive and love one another. And, he need, and we need to be able to understand that. That we come before God and give up. God, I forgive this person. At least do it to God. Even if you can't do it to the person, at least go to God. And if it's going to be real, you should deal with the person. Now, some people may not, may not be a good idea to, to tell them that they're forgiven. There are a handful of really violent people or something that might just take that as a sign of weakness, you know, but they're the rare, <laughs> they're the rare ones. We want to be very careful because sometimes, many times, we take what God says and we look at the worst possible thing that can happen and we come up with, well, if this or if that or what about this case or what about that case. I was sitting in a meeting at, at work the other day and everybody, they were saying, I want you to do this and everybody, all these guys, well, what about this? What about that? What about this? What about, and it's like, there's always going to be exceptions to every rule. Okay? There may be some people that you just are not going to be able to go up to and say, you know, I forgive you because they're violent or they're, or they're abusive to a, to a degree, but you need to forgive them in your heart. But you know what? They're the rare, <laughs> they're the rare individuals. Somebody may be dead and you can't give them, you know, can't go to them and forgive them. Forgive them in your heart. Well, what about the person that owes you an apology and don't have a clue that they do? Accept their apology or give them an apology when it's, all it's going to do is enrage them because they don't see any of their fault. So don't, get, don't do it to them personally, but you still have to forgive them. Absolutely. And then, they, and then they no longer owe you an apology because you've forgiven them. And it's gone. But as long as you're feeling, I'm owed an apology, you haven't forgiven them because the apology is, your, in your mind, your first step of them. It's the first step. Even an apology, expecting an apology is the first step of them paying their price. Another step of them paying their price is when you tell others about the bad that they've done because you're trying to make others feel, feel bad about them and you're trying to make them pay for their sin in a very passive-aggressive way. I'm going to tell others about how bad you are so that they won't like you, even if they don't know you. Lots of people do that all the time. You know, this person did such and such, and, you know, they, they, you know, and I know you don't know them, but let me tell you all about all the stuff that they've done wrong. Just so that if you ever meet them, you'll, you'll, you'll have bad feelings toward them because that will, that'll help them pay for their, what they've done wrong. 
They deserve to pay, and I'm going to make sure that you know what they deserve to pay. Now, do we think of that in those terms? No, we're just sharing how bad we've been hurt and, and all of that. But this is the problem that we're having. Let me tell you how bad this person is because they've got to pay. Somehow they've got to pay. And they don't seem to be paying, so let me tell you about how bad they are so that they can begin to pay, even though you don't know them and it's not going to matter to you. I'm, it'll make me feel good because they're beginning to pay the price of what they have done to me. Do you understand how big forgiveness gets? Forgiveness is my giving up all my right to demand that they be punished, whether it is talking bad about them, using them for an example about how bad they've treated, holding grudges against them, making other people feel bad about them. You know, this idea of forgiveness is so much bigger than what we ever can, tr can think about. When I have truly forgiven something, it doesn't necessarily mean I forget about what they've done. But I am not in, I'm no longer in a place when I've forgiven them that I'm wanting to walk the other direction when I see them. I'm not wanting to say bad things about them. I, I sit down and I say, God, I forgive this person. And again, it starts with God. Truly starts with God and saying, I give up my right to forgive, uh, to, to require punishment for this. Many people will walk around saying, my parents did this and this and this to me, and this is why I am the way I am. And you know, there's some truth in that. But the more you hold that grudge against your parents, you are in a stronghold that will keep you defeated for the rest of your life because you're saying, I can't control what they did to me, and I will not forgive them because I want to live in the misery and blame them. And we see this all the time. And psychologists are real good about this. They get you to blame somebody else. Instead of just saying, God, I'm going to forgive them and go forward with you. Psychology is all about blaming others. Why, do you, why are you the way you are? You're well, well, dad did this to me. Mom did this. Uncle did this to me. Uh, my my ex-girlfriend did this to me. The, my boss did this to me. And this is why I am. I'm a culmination of all these bad things that happened to me. And look, I'm a wreck. And, I, and they deserve to be punished because of how bad they treated me. And I just can't help it. And God is saying, give up the strongholds. Spiritual battle. I change the way I think to agree with God and defeat these spiritual strongholds that have a place in my life and say, I'm going to agree with God. I'm going to forgive people. I'm going to let go of it and move beyond the past. Most people in our country are stuck in the past. This, 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 this has happened, and therefore I am this way. And God's saying, okay, what about you're a new creation in Christ? Line upon line, change the way you think. We are renewed by the washing of our minds by the word of God. We change the way we think, and we understand who we are in Christ, and we let the past be forgiven and gone, and say, God, I don't care. Imagine what Paul would have done if he had concentrated on all the people he had sent into prison and killed instead of being changed by Jesus Christ to be a mighty apostle for the gospel. Well, God, I just can't talk to these people because, man, I just, I, I put uh, all their relatives in jail and, I, and many of them are dead and it's all my fault, so how can I preach to these guys? Mm. Do you realize that there are people that think that way? Yeah. 
think that way? God, I can't talk to these people because I messed up so bad and I really messed up their family so I cannot talk to them. Destroy that stronghold. Forgive them and let God change you. God, this sin is just so strong in my life. Get it crucified. Turn it to God and be changed by the washing of your mind. Romans 12, 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Everything that I am goes on the altar, good and bad. Verse Romans 12, 2. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. The world tells us it's all, it's all the fault of everything that everybody and everything that you've done. God says, be transformed. Renew your mind in him. Let go of the garbage of the world and put your mind on him. Focus on who you are in Christ. We are a defeated per people that are a product of everything that's happened to us according to the world. God says, it's crucified and gone. You are a new creature in Christ and I live in you and you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Which means get past all the garbage that's been put into your life that made you stop and be defeated all the time. It is a powerful truth when we start understanding. In Christ, I am forgiven. In Christ, I am righteous. In Christ, I am perfect. In Christ, I am not defeated. No matter what has happened to me in my past. And it is no matter how bad what has happened to you in the past. You know, if you don't believe me, read some of these biographies we have in here where people have led miserable, terrible lives and God's got hold of them and changed who they are. Mueller, a gambler, a user of people, a manipulator, ends up being one of the ones who trusts God the most. You know, we see Nikki Cruz gangster, murderer, thief, gets miraculously saved and God changes him overnight and he gets used by God. Mueller, George Mueller. He was a gambler and a manipulator. And then he tra transformed. Our lives can be completely 100% transformed by God if we will just confess and forgive and let him change us because that's what it amounts to. Most of us live defeated. God, I just can't do. I've tried it in the past and I couldn't do it. This person, you know, God, you know, and I did this myself. God, you know I can't talk to people. I've moved all my life and I don't care about people. I just don't want to talk to people because the next year I'm not going to know them. You know how hard it was for me to break that? I couldn't ever do it. God had to do it. God will change who you are by what, you're, what you've experienced in the past because he's the one that can do it. He breaks those strongholds and gives you victory because it's in Christ. But it's not even looking in the mirror and taking the blame. It is God, I confess the sin that I've done. I confess my part in this even. I confess that I've been hurt by others and I've been letting them become strongholds in my in my mind, God, I put it under the. I ask you to put it under the blood and, and take it away from me, and give me the strength of your Holy Spirit to be victorious in this area. How do you get someone though to see that? 
Who cares what they are? You are not responsible for anybody else's life. You are responsible for your own life. We all have more than enough problems in our own life than to be worried about how do I convince my kids, my grandkids, my, my niece, my nephew, my best friend, my, my fellow servant in the church. You let them stand or fall before God. God is going to be the one that gets hold of them. I'm not going to sit there and condemn people. I'm not going to sit there and tell them that they're doing wrong. My job is to get my own life in straight. This is what Jesus says. How can you take the speck out of your brother's eye when you've got a log out of your own life? Okay, when he's talking a log, he's talking about a great big two-by-four. You're, you're trying to get the, the, the speck in their eye, and you're smacking their head around with your sin. When Jesus was saying this, he's literally saying, you're trying to get that speck out, and you're bouncing their head around with, your, with the log in your own eye, trying to get the speck out of their eye. You get rid of your log in your own eye, and then you don't even worry about the speck in their eye because God will take care of their speck. And even if it's a log in their eye, God will take care of the log in their eye because he's, he was able to take care of your log. He can take care of their log. If they won't bend their, bend their will to God, then they're going to reap what they have sown. You know, and this is hard for us, especially as parents, to watch our kids suffer when they won't bend their knees to God. And God is saying, I will do what it takes to get them if you will just get out of the way. Too many times as parents, we stand in the way of our kids receiving what God needs to do to them to get them to bend their knees. Why? We'll say it all the time. Well, I just can't see the grandkids get hurt. If, if, if uh, my son or daughter gets hurt, then the grandkids are going to suffer. Yes, probably. But if we bail our kids out, our grandkids are going to suffer a lot longer than they will by God doing what it takes to break them. Most of the testimonies will, that you read, show somebody hits a rock bottom for them, whatever that rock bottom is for them, before they turn around and, and go, God, I'm going to trust in you. I'm going to trust in you. How many times have you hit the bottom and say, oh, God, you know, usually when you see God move is when you get to the point where you say, God, I give up. I just can't do it anymore. And God says, well, about time. Let's, get, let's, let's show you how to get out of this. And the moment you say, I give up, and I don't mean you just say the words. I mean you mean the words, I give up. Same thing as to be saved. God, I am a sinner. I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I know that I know that I'm a sinner and that I deserve hell. And I know that I know that you are the only way for forgiveness. Many people have said, God, I'm a sinner you know, come in and fill my life, and they don't mean it. They're just words. You get to the point where you say, God, I just can't take it anymore. I give up. I want you to take over. God, I, my flesh can't do it. Crucify my flesh. Get it out of the way. And, and you know, the, think over your life. Those times when you've had those victories where God was at that moment when you said, God, I'm finally giving up. I can't do it anymore. Whatever term you want to use. God, I can't do this. I can't handle it anymore. And you give up. And God says, okay, here we go. Now, let me show you what I can do. <laughs> you know, number one, we'll pick you right up out of this mess that you're in and put you over here on the dry ground. Matter of fact, I'll even give you a shower while I'm doing this. <laughs> and I'm going to give you the new clothes. And you're going to walk in victory from this point forward. You know, this is the power that God gives us. 
He does the work. And I keep bringing this up. Grace. He does the work. I don't deserve anything that God has done for me. If I got what I deserved, I'd be in hell right now. Every one of us would be in hell if we got what we deserved. And God's saying, oh, you've given up? Fine, let me show you. Here's my, here's my grace. I'm picking you up. My mercy, you're not going to be punished now. Let me put, pick you up, clean you up, and make you a shining example of my, my grace and my power. Have you ever wondered why certain people are used by God? You know, especially if you know their history. It's all God's grace. They surrendered to God. And God says, okay, let me show you how to be a victorious. Let me use you as a shining example of victory, of my grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. Do we really understand that? God will show us how awful our sin is, and then he'll give us grace to take us away from our sin. Once you've experienced grace and forgiveness, it becomes much easier to then turn around and forgive others. Because when you really see that what you deserve is nothing but God's grace, giving others grace and forgiveness is so much easier. How many times we walk around saying, God, you are just so lucky you have me. And we laugh about that, but you know, don't we act in that way so often? God, I come to church every, every time the doors are open. God, I pray to you as often as I can. God, I don't watch, I don't watch the X-rated movies on TV. God, I don't, I don't do this. I don't do this. God, you're really lucky you have me. And we might not be that bold in our statements, but don't we live like that quite often? You know, that God, you are just so lucky you have me. You know, that church is really lucky they've, they've got me. If it wasn't for me, they, they just wouldn't have anything put together. My family is really happy they've got me holding everything together. I'm a good Christian holding everything together in the family. And God is saying, get out of the way. Get out of the way so I can work. I'm going to show you my grace. And then when you start showing my grace to other people, when, I, when, when you learn my forgiveness for you and you start showing my forgiveness for others, watch God work. If you want an interesting assignment, start looking at the revivals that especially America's had, but revivals as a whole. They start with the church forgiving one another and then God moving out from there with forgiveness to the rest of the world. Amazing thing. The stories out of the Jesus movement where people would be coming together and just weep and confess sins one to another. And all of a sudden you'd watch God start moving in that place. I pray for a revival. And it'll start in our church when it comes. Because as, as far as we've come as a church, there's still issues in, amongst people in the church that need to be dealt with, that need to be covered and cleansed out. There's still issues with family members in, in, in the families of the churches that need to be dealt with and forgiven. We need to see God's move of forgiveness. And once he starts moving, oh, the miraculous things we're going to see. And we stopped right in the middle of a battle. <laughs> All right, let's, let's close in prayer. 
Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. Lord, we ask you to be with us as we go about to your day. Lord, we ask that you teach us to learn, number one, to forgive ourselves for our disobedience, and number two, to forgive those who have hurt us, and that we will learn to give grace and forgiveness. Lord, we pray that you will move mightily in this and that your spirit will flow upon each individual that's here in this church and listening to the to these messages online, that you will start seeing revival wherever this is heard and forgiveness will flow. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.